First you told us only through you could we know God And if we dared to question He wouldn't spare the rod For you we worked the soil For you we dug the moors For you we shed our blood And fought so many pointless wars Now you try to tell us There's nothing we can do You say the world around us Belongs fairly to the few But about six billion people No doubt will agree This world is our home Not your property It's the commons Our right of birth you who would enclose the land all around the earth Our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores But because you own the money, you say that it's all yours We laid the phone lines and the pipelines and then right before our eyes You say these things are taxes paid for, you now will privatize Privatize the hospitals Privatize the schools, privatize the prisons For all those who break your rules And preparing for the day When all the wells run dry You say you own the very rain That falls down from the sky But it's the commons, our right of birth And you who'd own the water All around the earth Our future is your downfall Only cut this ball and shame You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain You claim to own the harvest With your terminator seeds You claim to own the genomes Of every animal that breeds Good evening and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for May 19th, 2022 This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. In today's program, we'll be discussing what it's like to be a reporter in this day and age when there are so much false news, so many existential issues to cover, dangerous times for reporters, and difficult financial times for news outlets. Our guest is journalist Jessica Corbett a staff writer for Common Dreams. Her work in journalism primarily focuses on the intersection of politics, public health, and the environment, with additional curiosities about human and civil rights, gender and sexuality, and peace and labor movements. Her work at Common Dreams has been published by Alternate, Echo Watch, the LA Progressive, Salon, Truthout, Yes Magazine, and other outlets. And her previous writing has been published in The Nation, in these times, the Ithaca Voice and London's Peace News. Jessica graduated magna cum laude from Ithaca College, where she earned her BA in journalism and politics with concentration in international studies. She grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago and now lives in Portland, Maine. So let's have a look at what it's like to be a reporter when there is so much false news, so many existential issues, dangerous times for reporters, and difficult financial times for news outlets. Jessica Corbett, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thank you for having me back. Yes, yeah, so we really appreciate you on being before talking about some of the stories you cover. So it's going to be fun to kind of talk to you about what it's like to cover those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the first thing I think of is that uh, we're on the the 
edge of pl uh, planetary destruction and nuclear warfare and climate collapse and you're out there covering all this what does it feel like to be in the front seat of this strange set of scenarios well i will say you know dealing with these topics every day it takes quite a toll but i can't say that i'm you know in ukraine for example covering the war or um in palestine like shireen who was killed recently so i have so much respect for the work that those journalists do and frankly can't imagine the the difficulty of putting yourself in that kind of situation um but reporting on those topics from a distance i i definitely carry it with me even when i'm not working uh which i think you know makes me both the better citizen and maybe less fun to be around at parties and whatnot <laughs> um but it's it, it grounds you in reality in a way that uh, i think some of my peers uh, certainly have an experience working in other fields do you know any of the reporters that are working in war zones or some of the conflict zones in the world? Um, I don't offhand at the moment. Uh, I follow, you know, I follow a lot of the major outlets, and we try and cover, um, keep track of, you know, the folks in in Ukraine, for example, like mm -hmm. the Kiev Independent. Um, but I don't have personal connections with anyone who's currently in a war zone. So in the time you've been doing this, some of these are new crises that have emerged, I guess, even though you're pretty young. Um, do you think the world is worse now, or has it always been this bad? I think that it's a, it's a bit of both in that we have so much access to information now. The world is so connected that you may tune it out or choose to engage with certain issues only, but we have access to Twitter video footage of, you know, various war zones or various areas experiencing famine, whatever the crisis is, people around the world can see it almost instantaneously. And so I think that it is so overwhelming and it, it feels worse in a lot of ways because there's just so much all the time. And, and I think that is part of why, some people do choose to tune out the bad news because there's just so much of it. You know, you were talking a little bit in our email back and forth about the ethics and covering subjects that affect you directly. You know, you're a human being that is buffeted by all the stuff that's going on, like the uh, climate change and abortion rights for women and all kinds of things like that. Uh, do you have to balance some of that? I definitely have to balance it. You know, the way I might talk about it with a friend over a cup of coffee is certainly different from how I'm going to cover it. And even though I think every reporter, regardless of their take on objectivity, has a voice, um, my my journalistic voice is different from a casual conversation. Um, but that being said, I feel very fortunate to work for Common Dreams where we don't have to give uh, using abortion as an example, um, the same weight to attacks on reproductive health care that we would give to um, like people who are in favor of 
that, you know, we can actually elevate the voices of people who are outraged. And that is the mission of, of the outlet. So that was something that drew me to common dreams and makes me appreciate the work that I'm able to do because it does align with my values and everyone on staff. While we may have some disagreements, ultimately have a very similar uh, core value set that is just necessary for working for this kind of outlet. That's great. You don't have to just do what some other outlets do, which is to just repeat what the politicians say and and not put it in any kind of context. Right. And we bring in, you know, policy experts and activists, um, voices into these major topics, whether it's abortion or climate or attacks on voting rights. And certainly some of these same sources are being used by major magazines or newspapers or on broadcast news channels. But when you have someone who comes on right after them and is uh, spewing nonsense about voter ID laws, for example, what message really gets across to the audience, you know? There's also a lot of overlap between uh, different areas that have to be covered, like politics, health, and the environment. Um, what do you do about that? You can't cover it all, and they do overlap. They, and you just have to, I guess, kind of abbreviate sometimes. Yeah, and I think you know the beauty of working in an online forum is that we can hyperlink. Uh, we try, you know, keep it to a, to a certain minimum, but. Um, we can link back to our previous reporting. And so if I mention, you know, I'm working on a piece about COVID, for example, but, um, you know, last week, uh, a global task force might have said something about preventing future pandemics. I can drop in a link and maybe write a sentence about it, but I don't have to rehash that entire piece. And um, as much as I have a love for magazine writing uh, and reading words on paper, uh, the the cool part about being online is that you can direct people to other resources, whether they're your own or not, and they can explore at their leisure. Well, we did have a really interesting episode of intersectionality with the former President Bush this week. <laughs> you know, because we're always talking about how bad um, Ukraine is, and don't you wish that you could talk about some of the things the U.S. did? So what do you think about what, what just happened? You know, I, I I can't say that I engaged with it a ton. Like, I saw the headlines about it, but I thought that it was... Um, Amusing and unsurprising. That that was a slip of the tongue that many many <laughs> listeners have surely heard about. But uh, but for those that didn't, I think it was just yesterday that uh, uh, ex President Bush uh, re- referred to the uh, uh, you know abusive uh, you know, overbearing uh, invasion of Iraq. <laughs> he said instead of um, Ukraine. And that went uh, viral el pronto. So, Yeah, I'm still seeing jokes about that, and I have to admit, it, it's, it's still funny. <laughs> well, maybe it's not, because we're talking about a serious thing, but it's funny the way it came down, that he accidentally kind of revealed something that should be out there in the press anyway. 
And it has been in some places. I know, I, I, I wish I could recall where this interview was, but I know Noam Chomsky spoke shortly after the invasion began in February, um, just noting the comparison um, between U.S. actions for decades and Russia's actions this year. So the, the the other thing about talking about the breadth of all this, you have you have to cover everything right over at Comma Dreams. It's like <laughs> yeah, I wanted to give you a little plug here because uh, uh, on your own page there at uh, at Common Dreams, uh, today's article is uh, entitled "War Disasters Drive All Time High of Nearly Sixty Million Displaced Displaced in Home Nations." That's today. Yesterday, uh, what you've got three articles were out yesterday. It calls it. After which failed pregnancy should I have been imprisoned, asks Representative Lucy McBath. And then a slap in the face to voters. Kansas Supreme Court upholds GOP map. And finally, entirely reckless. Critics blast EU plan to boost gas infrastructure. That's all in one day. How the heck do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't count the tweets, Steve. I think there's even more of those. (laughs) Yeah, and... Um, I think that, you know, we definitely have folks on staff who gravitate towards certain issues. Like, as you mentioned in my bio earlier, I'm specifically very interested in climate and health issues. So when maybe, you know, a coworker pitches two stories and my managing editor's like, yes, let's do both of these. I might be like, hey, I'd love to do this one. Um, And so we are all uniquely interested in topics but we have to be prepared to cover whatever might happen during the day and is the best news uh for our progressive audience so it requires a lot of reading time uh a lot of staying up on what's going on i try and you know give myself a little bit of time when i log off at the end of the night around the weekends to to like go outside and walk the dog or take a hike but uh, you do really have to stay plugged in. And I think that a lot of people who work in news, whether it's radio or television or online um, and in print, feel that kind of pressure, the, the folks that I've talked to pretty much across the board. You've also uh, done a lot of fact-checking, which sounds to me tedious, but like probably the most important thing of all. What are kind of the, the, some of the experiences you had with that? And how, how, does, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I mean, um, this is maybe not a widely shared opinion, but I think that all journalists should have to do fact-checking first before they practice. All <laughs> right, I like the idea. <laughs> There's a good takeaway from today's show. Yeah, honestly, I started very young practicing journalism at like 14. I was very lucky to have a public high school program that had been around for over 30 years by the time I came to it. And so I learned a lot of foundational lessons out of in my teens. And then I studied journalism in college. But my fact-checking training was mostly at In These Times, which is a publication in Chicago. Uh, I was an intern there, and then I also interned at The Nation in New York City. And both of those programs are pretty predominantly fact-checking. You do some other uh, tasks as well, or at least when I went through both of those programs, they were primarily fact-checking. And they train all of their interns before they 
throw them into a feature piece. So <laughs> uh, I was very grateful for that because I feel like it kind of fundamentally shapes the way that you approach any story, whether you're working on a, you know, multi-thousand word feature or a 800 word breaking news article, you, you bring a critical lens to it that it, it just has to be developed. It's, you know, like any skill, you can't just jump into it overnight. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so you've got it all there. Um, you did send me a, a really funny story about uh, fact-checking, that sometimes that, that can be overdone. <laughs> well, I think one of the the tricky parts is um, communication with the writer, especially like when it's going through an editor. Sometimes you can get so bogged down in the tiny little details, like, the, the height of a building, for example. And, I, you know, I've had, uh, it, was, it was the height of a, a statue, um, but I've had issues like that before <laughs> where you spend an exorbitant amount of time trying to track something down that, like, fundamentally does not matter to the story. <laughs> and that old saying about, like, missing the forest for the trees, like, that's exactly what I think fact-checking can reveal sometimes about a piece is, well, how important is this fact actually and is it distracting from what you're actually trying to accomplish here um and you know i've been very fortunate i would say the vast majority of the writers and the editors that i've worked with across publications and books have been very receptive to fact checking but i do know and have occasionally experienced a writer thinking that they're just like the gift to the readers and being very stubborn about keeping things in uh, that can't be quickly verified or verified on deadline. And that's one of the big things about it is, you know, there, there's not an endless amount of time in a lot of these cases, because at least with what the fact-checking that I've done, a lot of it has been magazines or books, and they have to be printed at some point. <laughs> yeah, but that the other word is even worse, the deadline for broadcast news is so uh, that's uh <laughs> Exactly. Like you you have to know what you know when you go on air and that's it. Yeah, and if you don't know you can say that. <laughs> um yeah, or or the many times I've had to say we have not heard for response from so and so as of news time. <laughs> You know what? I really appreciate that transparency, and I think that there's not enough of that in journalism. The the recognition that we don't always know what's going on sometimes that is what needs to be shared. Like whether it's a like a breaking news report or a war zone. You know, I think like for example, if there's a mass shooting, everyone has an instinct to turn on the TV or the radio, and because they know that they're going to get quick updates, but those those anchors and those reporters have to fill time and they don't always have new information yeah that's that's deadly yeah uh, one of the things that you did on a book um the invisible child uh, that just got a prize right the pulitzer yeah so it's why it has been awarded and also resonated with so many people is because you know, for example, my grandmother, who wouldn't necessarily be interested in the homelessness policy and the history of racism in the United States that is talked about in the book, 
read it and flew through it and was just so impacted by the the story of the family that's featured in it. And so I think it, it makes very difficult topics accessible and human without dumbing them down. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently you, you co-fact-checked that particular book. So there was a couple of you on a couple of you of, of you yes. on that project. Yes, we brought in another fact checker just because of the amount of materials that we were working with. And I was continuing to work uh, with common dreams throughout the project as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Cashin Conroy uh, was my co-fact checker. And we also had a researcher who had been with Andrea for several years who mm-hmm. had done a lot of the initial work. Mm-hmm. So that book to listeners is called Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City. The author is Andrea Elliott, just won a Pulitzer Prize for 2022. Yeah, and fact-checked by our guest, Jessica Corbett. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, so that's, that's one. You do have deadlines, like you said, they have to be printed, the books do, but it's not quite the same thing as with uh, something that uh, you're covering a breaking news story. And um, I've, I've found that I've had to, like, oversimplify without misleading would be the, the way to try to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at Common Dreams, the way that we've been having conversations and experimenting with doing breaking and developing pieces uh, where there is a disclaimer at the top that says something along the lines of this is a breaking or developing story, please check it back for possible updates. And what's nice about that is we can give our readers that information, sometimes you can push it out on an email notification, for example. And when we know more or people start commenting on it, we can incorporate that. But we already have the shell of peace. Uh, and so I think that's what's cool about being able to work online is we can do that without having to worry that, oh, well, there's not a full story here. Well, in this media environment people don't necessarily expect that you're going to have a 800 word piece from the get-go if you've got two or three paragraphs up and that's all you know that's acceptable and i think that that's a more recent development with just like so the the impact of social media on news mm-hmm. let me remind uh, listeners we're speaking with jessica corbett she's a staff writer for common dreams talking about what it's like in this day and age to be a reporter when there is so much false news out there, so many existential threats and issues to, uh, dis- uh, to cover. It's dangerous times for reporters, particularly uh, in other parts of the world, and uh, difficult financial times for news outlets. Although I guess Common Dreams is holding their own. Yes, and I, I will say we definitely have experienced the post-Trump presidency drop in readers that has happened across news across different platforms we see it in print and online and in television and radio like there was just such a constant stream of chaos coming from the white house and Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but was there any was there any fact checking coming from the white house (laughs) well trying to fact check you know i think at least our approach often was okay. This is, we just just say in full what he said, 
and then kind of try and go line by line <laughs> uh, and offer the accurate information to the best of our ability. I, I know I've done those stories. I know my coworkers have done those stories. And it is a difficult task, but I think it was a very important one. And I think we saw the consequences of people who weren't exposed to that kind of work with the storming of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're touching here on a, a problem of, of the newsrooms. They're laying off people. It's an economic crisis for our news outlets in uh, you, you found several reasons you can put your fingers on as to what's causing this. Yeah, I, you know, it, part of it is definitely readership, and um, I, you know, that impacts outlets in different ways. At Common Dreams, we don't do advertising, so we are strictly reader funded. Um, so. You know, the, our engagement directly correlates to the money that we're bringing in, um, and in places that do advertising, same same situation where their revenue is tied to how many people are clicking on their pieces. Uh, so, regardless of where your money is coming from, you on some level, like you, you're still operating as a business, even if you as a journalist, or even the outlet, uh, sees itself as providing a public service. I think one of the most galling things is uh, the fact that there was a lot more clicks when Trump was around doing outrageous things one day after, one minute after the other, really, I guess. And that beefed up the newsrooms because they had to cover all that. And now that uh, Trump is in between presidencies, I didn't just say that. Now that Trump is out of office, um, and, and I think that maybe there's COVID fatigue, um, the, the interest in the news is, is kind of dropped and that's affecting our news departments. Yeah, I think it's COVID fatigue, both in terms of people don't want to read about COVID anymore. And I... I don't have numbers, but I I can attest to that even with some of our coverage. Um, But I also think it's, you know, COVID has just been so exhausting in general that a lot of people are struggling. You know, they're struggling with layoffs and illnesses in their family, and they're just tired after three years of this. So I I think that, you know, why do you want to open up your phone and read about human rights violations in Ukraine or mass surveillance or attacks on voting rights, reproductive rights, when you've just spent the last however many months trying to put food on the table. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of outrageous things that happen, uh, and then people instead are talking about a new word really in the last couple of years is self-care. They just... It's, it's, um, it's like it makes them people sick to hear what's happening. Which, on some level, it should. Like, you should be outraged by all of these crises. But I, I do think that it's it's difficult to maintain a healthy media diet. And I, I definitely say that as someone who's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, plugged in all the time because I have to be. So it's, it's understandable that people check out. And I, I have those conversations with people in my life who are not in this industry. But I think that what we can do as, as folks who are more engaged is, you know, share 
share tidbits. Like I have people in my life that I will, I'll send a relevant article to because I know it interests them and hope that it may spark them going down a rabbit hole on a particular trusted source uh, on another topic and at least keep them updated on, on big developments. Like for example, today I, I sent a bunch of messages as I was uh, working on a story about the Oklahoma abortion ban that passed the state legislature today, which would be the strictest abortion ban in the country if signed by the Republican governor as expected. Um, even though Roe, at least for the time being, is still in effect. Yeah, the other thing we're seeing, too, is a loss of local newspaper coverage of their town. And so well, things could be going on in the city council that at one time were observed for the public, and now they're just kind of happening behind the scenes. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, especially because there is so much information available you know, maybe you're interested in international politics or national politics. You just feel the effects of something in that level greater. There's been a loss of engagement with local news and uh, they struggle to get by, especially when they're bought up by all these massive companies that are interested in stripping them of their resources and taking as much money as possible. We covered that a few years ago. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, Steve, you had a mischievous question you wanted to ask Jessica, which is... Oh, I probably have a couple of mischievous uh, questions, but, <laughs> but there's one I want to go back to a minute, because uh, one of your techniques about fact-checking is go to the, going to the original source. And yeah. I want to mention something which I, I think I mentioned some months ago in a, uh, on a different program, but it, uh, it's about the election, um, uh, the election a year ago, or now, now pushing a year and a half ago. Um, but it's about the, the, the original sources. I'm not aware of anywhere in, in the country where uh, there's anyone you know, claiming that, uh, that Trump won the election, this kind of thing, where the people that counted the votes, who are Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians and all the other party preferences, where they disagreed. I've never heard that. They, you know, the Democrats, Republicans, and all that count the votes together. They're looking over each other's shoulder. They're watching each other, and they're counting them, and they're sure they got it right. And and the conclusion is, you know, for the uh, the states where where um, Biden won is that Biden won. End of discussion. It's other people that are, you know, claiming you know it, it, it people that have political gain about it, but not the original source people. Now, I have you heard anything about that? Because as far as I know, that's the way it is. I've never heard anything to the contrary. I also can't say that I've heard anything to the contrary. And I mean, I think that it was just a very clear strategy by the Trump White House and allies, um, potentially, you know, even allies in Congress who were just fearful of angering Trump mm -hmm. and not necessarily believing the big lie that the election was stolen. Um, but yeah, I, I can't say that I've ever encountered any claims from like vote counters. Mm hmm. Well, so what's your two cents worth on allowing anyone, we'll just refer to this person as anyone, back on you know, Twitter <laughs> and, and social media? Yeah, I think this is a really important and complex topic that doesn't get treated with the complexity that it deserves because, first of all, you have these massive companies 
ultimately in charge of what gets said on these platforms. And I think that that is not given enough attention in the conversation. Like they can set the terms of the service. And, you know, if we want to change that, we need to have laws that, that address the power of these big tech companies. But for now they're controlled by, by the owners or the shareholders, depending on how they're structured. And so that, that is one facet of it is, well, how much control do we really have of what private companies do? And the other element of it is when people are causing harm or inciting violence, when, when lies are putting lives at risk, then I think that that makes a pretty clear case for deplatforming someone. Now, I, I do have appreciation, you know, recently when there was conversation about Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter and he would possibly allow Trump to come back if he wanted to come back, which he said he doesn't. Um, there was disagreement among groups that are like broadly labeled progressive because you have some saying, well, this man incited a violent insurrection after spreading lies upon lies for years about everything you possibly think of. Um, and, you know, after the attack on the Capitol, a lot of platforms finally were like, okay, <laughs> we get it. We're taking him off. And then you have also the ACLU saying, you know, we, we disagree fundamentally with pretty much everything that comes out of Trump's mouth, but we don't think that you should take his platform away. And also we've used a lot of his crazy tweets in our efforts to hold him accountable through the legal system. Uh, so I I definitely can understand that element of it. And I think I probably in most cases lean in the direction of hold people accountable for what they say rather than take away their voice. But I think that under the specific circumstances of this violent attack, I, I do understand that why the decision was made at that time, mm -hmm. both with Twitter and with various other outlets that made the same choice. Mm -hmm. Is there a third way around it? Like, uh, let people say a lot of what they want. I would never say everything, but uh, some of the stuff that we find objectionable, we don't believe is true at all, and it's really messing up our democracy to be you know, straight about it. Um, but is there a way that some people could say that and they wouldn't get so much attention if there weren't these algorithmic um, elevations, amplifications of things that are marginal? Is there, or would they just never even talk about doing it that way because it makes more money? Well, I mean, so yes, it is absolutely possible to bury posts that are not true. Uh, but also, yes, I don't think that these private companies are ever going yeah. to do that unless they're forced to. Hmm. Well, let me uh, mention listeners again. We're speaking with Jessica Corbett, talking about what it's like in this day and age to be a uh, reporter when you're surrounded by false news existential issues dangerous times for reporters and uh, difficult financial times for news outlets if you would like to ask a question or make a comment the call-in number here is area code 707 of course uh 895-2448 again 895-2448 there's some interesting citizen fact checking going on in bellingcat do you ever look at that 
they did a uh, well they do stuff all over the world but uh, basically it's citizen scholars that study NASA photographs and aerial photographs to try, try to discover the truth say like a, a massacre in Ethiopia they they take uh, pictures from you know aerial pictures drones and from space that are available somehow on the internet and and then study you know everything from like shadows for times of day and locations of mountains shapes and stuff to figure it out and with this latest the killing of the Al Jazeera reporter uh, in uh, Gina Jenna um, they said that after looking at the pictures, they couldn't find anything to support the Israeli assertion that there were combatants of the area that they would be firing at and that the reporter was hit by accident. So that, so that, I thought that was pretty interesting that there's, it's possible for everybody to jump into this if you have nothing but time and a computer. <laughs> yeah, I think that in a lot of ways that's great because you can do it yourself if, you, if you're questioning the accuracy of something um that being said i can't say that you know a lot of folks necessarily have the research skills to know what to trust and what not to trust online um and so i think that you know i especially in college i worked a lot with media literacy programs with young children from elementary to middle school to high school and i think that developing those kind of skills at a young age is really important and uh, as college students studying media we went into the schools and did these programs but as far as i know that's not a, a standard part of pu most public education experiences and so i think that um, with the, the power to Google anything, we do need to be teaching people of all ages how to do so in a way that is, um, is, is actually leading you to accurate information. Because just as an example, you know, the spread of COVID vaccine misinformation, so many people, including people in my life and um, people in the lives of, of my peers, you know, they have their parents or their brother or their sister say, oh, I read this thing on Facebook that my friend shared and look at this video. And it's it's total nonsense, but they're scared and they believe it. And, you know, it, it maybe has a nice production value or it's, it's well written and it looks like you would expect a reputable source to look because... It's not that hard to put together a nice website or a nice video shot if you know what you're doing with the technology. Yeah, well, I would say about Bellingcat that they do a lot of training on their website for people. But I would also say you would have to have this really intense temperament to do that you know inspecting things like that for hours and hours I, I don't think that most of us could do that but I just thought it was interesting phenomenon that's happening let me mention once more it's 895-2448 if you wish to get in a question for our guest Jessica Corbett 895-2448 you know the other thing about the coverage that you do it uh, stirs up so many issues for our democracy and the last time we had you on we talked about the climate and the Stephen Donziger case and that has now been 
I guess, sort of resolved. I mean, I think he's free, but I wouldn't say it was resolved. Um, do you want to describe that case just a little bit? And then um, maybe we could talk about some of the crazy issues that it, it raised up by, like, you know, judges appointing other judges that work for the corporation that that is pressing the charges there was just it was a strange strange case what do you think i think that that is such a great example of a case that highlights the inadequacies of our justice system so uh, assuming that don zinker is a human rights and um, environmental attorney he's american but he represented people in the Ecuadorian Amazon who were impacted by oil development and um, by Texaco, which was bought by Chevron. And through the Ecuadorian court system, he won a multi-billion dollar settlement that has not been paid out on um, for these people who've been impacted, um, you know, dealt with the health consequences of the, and the environmental consequences of the extractive system and so after all of this played out in the Ecuadorian courts Chevron decided to in what Don Ticker and his legal team framed as you know blatant retaliation um, go after him in the U.S. court system and so through a series of events in the U.S. courts, uh, he refused to turn over some materials that were confidential, it was confidential, or like it was devices that would have confidential information about his clients um, and was thus found in contempt of court and uh, was subject to extremely extended house arrest. And when the public prosecutors would not pursue charges, the federal judge hand-selected a private law firm that had ties to Chevron to charge him, which is allowed in the legal system in the U.S. And uh, this case has prompted people across the country, including some progressive lawmakers, to say, this is totally insane. We need to fix this. Mm-hmm. So he has been freed. He served, I think oh, it was well over um, 900 days. He had been sentenced to six months in in prison, but then was sent back on house arrest as part of a COVID release uh, system. And he's now free. I saw on Twitter, maybe today or yesterday, he posted that he was in New Mexico um, with an indigenous leader. So I think he, my sense is, you know, he's starting a, a Substacks, uh, which is like an, the online newsletter system. So um, I think folks who aren't on Twitter can follow along there. Um, but the, my impression is definitely that he's just kind of diving right back into his work, representing um, and engaging with indigenous people who are trying to protect the planet which I think is really admirable given everything he's been through. And meanwhile, there is a push um, for Biden to pardon him. And I, I think that 
you know, my, my broad sense is that would perhaps be kind of a long shot just based on the limited action we've seen from the White House on, on that front um, with him specifically and with the concept of pardoning in general. But I, I do... I do think that anyone who's encountered this story is is quite enraged and appalled by it. Yeah, I, I would hope that that would lead to some changes in the law. There were so many things that were wrong with it, the the uh, disproportionate sentence, for one, and then the, the just the hijacking the court and putting it in the hands of Chevron to to try it I, to, uh, to me that's unbelievable I, I guess I guess I'm being naive about our court system <laughs> I, I do think though that it was a unique situation I mean on one hand he he's a a white man who works as an attorney and so there may be some more coverage that he gets compared to other people who are facing struggles within the court system but that being said it it highlights a topic that like frankly i didn't know about the concept of these like private prosecutions until this case i like and so i certainly didn't go to law school but it, it's something that was completely off my radar until i started reporting on this and i think that that's very likely true for the vast majority of people i'll be curious to see what the future is for um for any counter prosecution for for false prosecution and for judicial misconduct but that's beyond what we can go into for the moment here today but i i will be watching that in the future to see what ever happens to that case because it sure looks like a valid case of that Another crazy thing that you must run into almost daily is the filibuster, because that has to do with every everything that anybody's trying to do, right? That the abortion rights and gun control. Um, what do you think is going on with that, or will is that ever going to change? I have to write Joe Manchin's name one more time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that that's really going to depend on the makeup of the Senate that we see post 2022 because at this point mansion and cinema have made very clear that they have no interest in changing the senate rules and i think that the only path that the democrats have or the democratic caucus has in the senate is to win more seats so i'll be very interested to see what happens in pennsylvania mm-hmm. but Based on how the first two years of the Biden presidency is gone, I think there is a lot of very valid concern that the Democrats will lose the Senate and potentially even the House. So while it seems clear that the filibuster is standing in the way of every possible piece of legislation from the Build Back Better Act to climate legislation more broadly to reproductive rights to voting rights it's just not something that i'm optimistic will change based on the behavior we've seen from those few right-wing senators in the democratic caucus mm-hmm. yeah a year from now we may be um, uh, thankful that the filibuster exists if it's the democrats on the defensive in the senate so 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that will definitely be true post-2024, depending on the presidency mm-hmm. at that time. You know, another thing that um, these stories you cover that exposes all these things that are wrong, um, this whole thing about the formula shortage, what does that tell us about our corporate capabilities here? Yeah, well, I think that what's been crazy to me is the the lack of awareness that so much formula comes from these handful of companies um, and it really highlights, it, it, you know, it. it's one of those issues that really enrages people because it's like, well, we don't want to be starving babies. That's crazy and inhumane. Um, but it highlights corporate consolidation in a way that's very human because it is how a portion of, a, of society is able to exist. Um, and I, I would hope that I've seen some coverage, you know, particularly by progressives like um, Dave Dan did a really great piece about it. And we've done some coverage, but I, I can't say like I've engaged with like nightly news, for example. And I'm sure that that's like a topic that's being covered. And I'm, I hope that journalists at all levels are doing what they can to highlight that the root of this is not just oh, there were some problems in this factory and, you know, leave it at that, but point to the bigger picture here of, well, if we didn't have this kind of limited corporate control over everything, then we wouldn't be running into crises like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, that that's the thing that struck me about this too. This this country is supposed to be, you know, a capitalist worshiping all our corporations, and we show that at every moment. And once in a while, it's, it's good to take a look at how how they don't deliver. Mm-hmm. I haven't noticed anything in the news. I haven't heard anything um, expounding on the original. Give me that old time formula. Provision. Uh, it's called, you know, from mom, and uh, but I haven't seen that, uh, you know, promoted as 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 the alternative, the natural alternative. Yeah, so. I mean, I've I've seen some of it, but unfortunately, I think a lot of it has come from a um a, a negative place oh. uh, that doesn't necessarily recognize the the issues that a lot of people have with breastfeeding or or circumstances where the caregiver is not capable of breastfeeding, mm-hmm. whether it's because they're, um, they don't have breasts or that they're not the biological parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their body isn't producing that. So I think that that, um, some of that messaging has, has come, come across in a way that is, is not, uh, recognizing the diversity of family situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me mention one last time, uh, 895-2448, if anyone wants to get uh, in a question for Jessica Corbett about what it's like being a reporter in this day and age with so much false news and existential issues to cover. Speaking of existential issues and reporting on such, you have a wonderful uh, apparent way of maintaining your sanity. Uh, what is it? <laughs> 
<laughs> this, this, I mean, you, you, you report on some very some frightening uh, issues, and, and I, we're getting more and more into climate change and corporate resistance to it, this kind of thing. So how do you manage your, uh, your composure and all? Uh, well, I got a puppy in November, and <laughs> right. it walks outside really helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like, I, you know, when she, when she barks at me, I'm like, okay, guys, I will be back in 10 minutes. I don't have a choice, or I mean, I guess I do, but my floors would pay the price. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really helped, and I think I just try and spend as much time outside as possible. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to be walking along the beach or through the woods and not think about the the impacts of what we're doing to the planet both in terms of climate and also other types of pollution mm-hmm. uh, you know you can't just like go through a, a stroll in the woods and be like huh i wonder when this is going to catch on fire <laughs> <laughs> that's right so we're um getting toward the end here we should spend a little time talking about common dreams what's different about common dreams You've been around for quite a while now, right? Yeah, yeah. I joined Common Dreams in July of 2017. Um, and I had mostly been freelance fact-checking at that point, but looking to switch into writing. And I'd been following them since college. I'd, I'd actually encountered them in high school um, because Common Dreams was founded in 1997, um, initially more so as an aggregator, uh, and oftentimes bringing in opinion pieces from all over the country and then um, ultimately growing to have a news team. So we really have the opinion side of the site, which is both three posts with permission and also unique stories to common dreams. And then we have the news side and our news team has, has grown in recent years, which is really wonderful because it expands what we're able to cover every day um so it's been incredible to um to work with like-minded people who are similarly committed to journalism through a progressive lens how many people work at common dreams now oh goodness well we have uh, five of us who do um, more staff writers and then we have um, a couple higher editors and an editorial assistant who does a lot of work with the opinion side and then um, we also have some some folks who handle the business side of things like the website and the donations and everything and is that how you get along on all donations yeah so there are some um I think like grants and and such, but yeah, they're all, it's all reader funded. Um, So that is something that is, uh, has always been true as far as I know, and um, is very important to the founder. I I should mention uh, um, in uh, full disclosure, I'm a, uh, a subscriber, I guess you'd call it, or you know, monthly <laughs> monthly donor, automatic donor to Common Dreams. By the way, that is uh, www.commondreams.org, and you can also find Jessica's work there if you go to commondreams.org/author/slash/slash/jessica-corbett dash, dash Corbett, and that's C O R B E T T E. 
Yeah, and that's news that it's the news that's that's happening that day, but it's it's also with a progressive perspective, I think you could say, especially when you're looking at the all the environmental things that you write. Yeah, and I think that we have seen as the as the climate crisis has worsened before our eyes a lot of outlets shifting toward um just reporting reality and not giving weight or um a lot of space to the the folks who are denying the existence of human-caused climate change Mm -hmm. so I, I appreciate that broader shift in the media industry, but yeah, I do think that we are, are particularly focused on both um, science and also the progressive policy solutions, things like the Green New Deal, um, that aim to deal with the crisis at the scope that is required. And I mentioned that there are two other websites. One is your own at jessicacorbett.com. Again, uh, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-C-O-R-B-E-T-T. And you're blogging now, apparently. So that's jessicacorbett.wordpress.com. Yes, that's that's a little bit on hold because of the puppy training. But mm. I, I <laughs> aim to, to do some private, more reflective writing um, that's not so much like news. And, and, and we thank your puppy for such good behavior because we took you away during your playtime. <laughs> <laughs> it's late playtime back east, but uh, but wonderful. Well, you are one of our hero reporters, I'll tell you. We follow your work and appreciate you being with us today. That's Jessica Corbett. You can find her work at commondreams.org or just jessicacorbett.com. And thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the air with us. Well, thank you for having me back. I have enjoyed talking with you both so much. We want you, want you back next year, so we'll be in touch. Yeah, yeah. or before that, depending on which thousands of your stories. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willitson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.